Good morning. It's uh, lovely to be back up here again, and after last time, I can speak. Hurrah! Which is uh, good for me, maybe not good for you, but certainly good for me. So here we are in our final week of Esther. Um, don't you love the Old Testament books? I've really enjoyed these. And uh, hint, Lisa, let's you know do some more. No, I, always watch it. I know. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, there we go. <laughs> We're lucky anyway. Um, so thank you for reading that as well. And yes, I know the long names in it. <laughs> um, where are we up to? Um, for those who haven't been here, or for those who've fallen asleep, or just like me, to do a quick recap as to where are we going? Yeah. Microphone. Yes, I'm going to do a quick recap of Esther. Can you hear me now? Again, Neil? Yep. Yeah, oh, a bit more, a bit better. Yep, are we there? Cool. Oh, we are now. Right, I'm going to do a quick three-minute recap of Esther. Okay, don't time me, but this is it, and forgive the artistic license. So, we have King Xerxes, most powerful ruler in the world. He has a party and a disagreement with his wife, Queen Vashti, resulting in her not being queen anymore, just Vashti. King Xerxes, after a while, gets a bit lonely. He's not having a good time, starts to hunt for a new wife. And he goes back to do it by having a beauty contest. Esther is one of the winners of Miss Persia and goes into the king's harem. Takes her 12 months to get ready to see him. I thought Liz was long, 12 months. But she becomes the king's favorite and is made queen. But she doesn't mention she's Jewish. Shh. Queen Esther has a cousin called Mordecai. Mordecai likes sitting by gates. Every time he mentions Mordecai, he's sitting by a gate. The man likes gates. Um, but he discovers a plot to kill the king. He tells Esther, who tells the king, plot is foiled, and it's written down in the kingly diaries. Life carries on. Now, there's a chap called Haman. He gets, boo indeed, he gets promoted to prime minister, and the whole thing goes to his head. Gets delusions of grandeur, insists everyone bows down before him. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, also a Jew, are you keeping up? Um, he's having none of it and refuses to bow down. Haman, with the rationality of all despots, decides to kill Mordecai and all of the Jews, young, old, male, female, the lot. The king walks straight into this by doing that whole man thing of not listening properly. When Haman just says, some people aren't obeying you, he signs an irreversible order to slaughter the Jews. Mordecai, discovers the plot, dons the old sackcloth and ashes, and dashes back to his favorite position by the palace gate. Gets a message to Esther about what's happening. After a bit, she gets brave, goes to see the king, and invites the king and Haman to a banquet, and then promptly to another one. After banquet number one, on his way home, Haman passes Mordecai, who still refuses to bow. Haman has a proper strop 
goes home, complains to his wife and all his family, and then sets to building a 75-foot-high execution pole, like you would. In the midst of all this is a short interlude while the king can't sleep, probably because of all the soaring and hammering coming from Haman's place. <laughs> so he opens the kingly diaries for a bit of a nighttime read. Over his cocoa, he reads and remembers what Mordecai's done for him and decides to honor him. It's morning now. Sends a servant out to find somebody who can do something useful and set all this up for Mordecai. As it happens, Haman, strolling through the palace grounds, very pleased with himself, off to ask for Mordecai's execution when he's brought before the king. The king asks what he should do for that, someone special. Haman thinks it's him that the king's about to honour. He goes to town with a whole kingly robes and a horse ride, because who wouldn't want some used clothes? And this is then followed up by a lot of eunuchs sniggering when we discover that actually it's Mordecai who's being honoured with a pony trek around the city and not Haman. But to his mortification, Haman has to organise the parade and lead Mordecai around. No sooner is he back from the ticker tape parade than the king's units are here to drag him off to Esther's second banquet. After a party tea and a glass of pop, the king says to Esther, what is it that you want? What do you want? And cool as a cucumber sandwich, she turns to him and says that somebody is out to kill her people and, and his queen. The king is outraged. Asks who would dare to do this? Now, I suspect Haman may have had a slightly <clears throat> dry throat at this point, and that second helping a trifle was a bit bothersome now. You could probably have cut the atmosphere with a knife when she points to Haman and dobs him into the king. The king, who's a tad upset that his favorite queen's about to be killed, storms into the garden. Haman, who's a tad upset that he's about to be killed, makes a run for the queen, trips, falls, and lands, unfortunately, right by the queen. Now, bear in mind, it was no other man could look upon the harem other than one of the eunuchs. So to actually be found a little too close to comfort for the queen was not a good place to be. I love the sentence, and I think it perhaps reveals just how highly Haman was held by the other palace staff that the king comes in, and one of the eunuchs at the back is, pick me, pick me, he's built a gallows. <laughs> And the king instructs that Haman's dragged off and executed instead of Mordecai. Now, if this was Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, there would have been a song, a dance, and we'd all be going home. We'd all be happy. Everything was great. But the danger's not over yet. Esther has to go again before the king, present herself in the hope of a good reception, and through tears, beg that this law can be rescinded. But it's a law of the Medes and Persians, and it can't be changed. But instead, a cunning plan is drawn up to let the Jews defend themselves and kill all of those who are out to kill them. As we've just heard in the reading, this happens, and over 75,000 enemies, including all of Haman's sons, are killed. Mordecai is promoted to prime minister. The Jews are all instructed to celebrate the Feast of Purim to remember these events. Isn't it lovely? Hasn't it gone well? Whoops, let's go that way, shall we? There we go. Hasn't it gone well? All's well that ends well. It sounds positively Disney. Warm fuzzy glows all round. 
But something that Sarah said last week, oops, sorry, I keep walking off, don't I? Something Sarah said last week really resonated with me and stuck with me this week. We know that all ends well because we've got the whole book. We can start at the beginning, finish at the end, half an hour later, and we've got it. We know it all ends well. We know Haman loses and the Esther Mordecai tag team win. We know good prevails, but at the time, they didn't. At the time, they were left wondering if they'd all die. At the time, they were left wondering if Esther would be allowed to come before the king, have her audience, or would she suffer Queen Vashti's fate, or worse. At the time, they were left wondering if Haman would manipulate the king and have Mordecai killed. They time they didn't know their fate, they didn't know the fate of all those Jews throughout that whole kind of massive nation. They didn't know. They faced persecution and trial with an uncertain outcome. How similar is that to some of the stories we've just seen on the video from the persecuted church today? Not knowing if your church is going to be blown up by terrorists or if the state's going to shut it down. As a minister, not knowing whether you're going to be sent off to a camp with your family or dragged in the square and executed. As believers, not knowing if actually there's an informer in with you, if you're all going to be arrested sitting in church, if you're going to be called in for ideological conversion. See, living as a son or daughter of God in a foreign land, in, in hostile territory, um, in this world, in fact, it's not an easy place to be wasn't the easy choice for Esther and Mordecai in 460 BC. And nearly two and a half thousand years later, it's still not an easy choice. It's still a dangerous choice. As a follower of Jesus, we know that we will have, whoops, um, not that, um, <laughs> trials and suffering. We know that they will come. Lisa spoke of an invitation an invitation to come to Jesus. And Phil spoke of being bold, being bold for Jesus. But how are we going to handle the persecution, the trials and suffering when we do? Perhaps one of the most scary things about becoming a Christian is knowing that the moment you place your trust in Jesus, the entirety of hell takes arms against you, intending evil upon your life. Trials and suffering will come from being a Christian. Guarantee on that one. So what do we do? Where do we get our hope from when it all seems hopeless? What's going to sustain us? Now in the Bible, in James, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I struggle with that one sometimes, if I'm honest with you. You know, in the middle of those trials, pure joy is not perhaps at the forefront of my mind. But let's be real. What do we need to do then in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of our trials? And I actually want to take another story. I want to take Esther's story and another one and kind of pull them together and have a quick look. And the story I want to take is that of ta-da, Joseph, he of Technicolor Dreamcoat. So what can we remember of his story? Quick recap other than his posh coat. His dad was Jacob, son of Isaac. Bit of a wedding mix-up. Jacob eventually marries Rebecca. She gives him Joseph and Benjamin, his favorite sons. Joseph's brothers positively hate him. 
And the relationship isn't made any easier when he has some rather self-promoting dreams, shall we say. The brothers go from positively hating him to actively hating him and prove it by dropping him in a well and then selling him as a slave. Just to prove the principle that God takes those who are reduced to nothing and persecuted, he ends up a prisoner. But as that captive, he finds a really deep relationship with God. He interprets some dreams in jail, but the cupbearer, one of the dreams he deciphers, forgets about him and he languishes in jail for quite a long time. Pharaoh has a dream, cupbearer remembers, Joseph interprets it and predicts that there's going to be a massive famine on its way. He gives a really, really, really good policy recommendation to the pharaoh, who's dead impressed, and makes him prime minister. Sets him over the land of Egypt, famine strikes, only Egypt has any food. The Egyptians are saved. Yay! But that's not really the point, actually. The point of the story is that God appointed and anointed Joseph to save and reunify his fractured family. It's that bowl again. His family was completely fractured and broken, and Joseph was there to bring it together. Because his family were, of course, the future 12 tribes of Israel and part of Jesus' lineage. God acted through the suffering of Joseph to bring the security of his people, just as he acted through Esther to bring the security of his people, to stop his people perishing. But what did Joseph have to get him through? He was mistreated by his family, by just about everybody, actually. People who had no right to hate him and put him in prison did. He did nothing wrong. And yet he spent most of his 20s languishing in an Egyptian jail. And despite this, he could still say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's the key, isn't it? God meant it for good. That's what we need to bear up under our trials and under our tribulations. We've got to trust in the sovereign goodness of God. Because Joseph's trust in God's sovereign goodness enabled him to withstand all those trials and tribulations, all the suffering that came against him, and to know it was all part of God's plan. Mordecai and Esther trusted in the sovereign goodness of God to withstand everything that came against them and to know that it was part of God's greater plan. And we need to remember that God is good, that he's sovereign over everything. He is in control and his plan is greater. It might just be, though, that his plan means we suffer a little now. I think it's a brilliant cartoon, that. His plan means for a time in our lives, we have a hard time. Things don't necessarily go our way. Just as Esther didn't know if she would live or die from Haman's schemes, Joseph, he didn't know how things were going to turn out either. He didn't know he was in Egyptian jail for all of his days. He didn't know he was going to go from prisoner to prime minister. And we don't know how our trials and sufferings will turn out, but isn't there an amazing comfort in knowing that however difficult, however horrible, however hard it gets, the sovereign God is still in control. Do you remember Job, that cheery little story, little ray of sunshine that he was? His life is slowly dismantled bit by bit by the Satan, but yet God is still in control. He's still over everything. God is giving 
permission for how far Satan could go. Satan couldn't do anything unless God willed it. Chapter 1, it says, verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Do not lay a finger. God is in control completely. Not a bit, completely. Just as God isn't implicitly mentioned in Esther, neither is the devil, but I think it's fairly obvious who's behind the scheme. But God is sovereign over anything. God couldn't do anything to Job unless... Satan couldn't do anything to Job unless God willed it. Should we take some comfort from that? That although we might be under spiritual attack, we may be being persecuted, God is with us. He is under control. A quick flick through the Bible has loads of verses, tons of them, about God being with us. I pulled a few out here. Psalm 46, God's our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. We know a song about that. Isaiah 41, do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy, it's the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And Thessalonians, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Joseph knew that God is sovereign over everything. Sovereign over all the evil done against him. He knew that God is in control of all things. He knew that God has a greater plan. He says this in Genesis 45. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of Egypt. Do we get the hint? God sent me. Joseph knows who's in control, despite all the difficulties, who's in control. Sometimes we have to believe that things happen, we do stuff, we're called to do stuff, we have to endure trials for reasons that at the time we don't know, we don't understand. But we have to believe these things aren't merely chance, but of God's hand. Let me jump you back just a few years to 2015 and I was in Coventry and I didn't want to be. I don't know anybody who does. <laughs> Liz and I had, had a fairly interesting few years prior to that, the kind of pre three or four years prior to that. They've been, been quite hard work, to be honest. We'd had a few, uh, a few health issues. Um, I'd struggled a bit with work, to be honest. And I'd retrained as a landscape architect. And I qualified just as the economy nosedived and they laid off all the landscape architects in the country. And I was out of a job again. Liz's job was really, really stressful. She had endless problems with the partnership it was really hard we changed church we were finding it hard to settle it seemed that everything that secured us to that place was slowly being unpicked it was all being taken to pieces we'd lived there for 18 years and all of a sudden it didn't quite feel like home 
Now, for a couple of years before that, we'd been looking to move. We'd been to all these different places around the UK, having a look. We'd even gone as far as a job interview in Australia. I could have been preaching somewhere warm this morning. <laughs> but every time, something stopped us. Every time there was a problem, something went wrong. There was always a reason why it wouldn't work. To be honest, I was absolutely fed up. I was cheesed off. We were in just enduring permanent difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. Then, one day, one of Lizzie's medical journals popped through the letterbox and fell on the mat. Now, I don't, I don't read these. I rarely open them because, frankly, the pictures are gross. <laughs> really put you off your Weetabix in the morning. Um, but on this occasion, I did. I picked you up and flicked through it, um, kept going, until eventually I got to the job section at the back. I had a quick look, and there, out of the page, jumped at me an advert for a GP in Skipton. Now, I've been coming to Skipton all my life. We've got friends, we've got a farm up by Airedale, and uh, my mum and dad retired here a few years back now. But we never thought of moving here, the frozen north, e by Eck and all that. But we debated... And we prayed, and after four years of uncertainty, my prayer was that I'd go where you lead, God, but I can't do it on my own anymore. I'm, I'm done. Now, I'd love to tell you it was a really smooth process, and after that, everything went brilliantly, and we went to look for a house, and the clouds parted, and a ray of light shone on the property. Oh! It wasn't like that at all. It was horrendous. Every step of the way was really, really hard work. From finding a house to selling a house. We were in the south of France when they said, oh, the job interviews for Lizzie's job are taking place that week. Can you pop back? No, we're in the south of France. Every, every time something could go wrong, it did. But do you know what? Every time something went wrong, there was a brilliant coincidence that put it right. So every time... God restored to us that vision of that plan, and it all went back right again. And um, I'm not going to tell you all of them because we'd be here forever. My favourite one, perhaps, I think, is trying to get the girls into school. We had just had an absolute nightmare. We couldn't get them in. We went through all the hoops possible to get them a place, and we ended up going to appeal. And we sat down with the appeal panel the week before Christmas, for them to start the week after Christmas. It was cutting it fine, to say the least. We didn't even got a uniform for this point. And we went in, one of the biggest problems we had was that year seven, which is year first year seniors to all of us, um, year seven, there were no places, none. They were full to capacity. And we were told, well, there's no place, no coming in. That's it, we're done. We sat down in front of this panel, we told our story and we sat to wait to hear what they would have to say. And we heard these words. Well, it's really odd and this never happens. In fact, it's never happened. In fact, it just doesn't happen. But just last week, the family said they weren't coming back after Christmas. You've got your place. I believe that God had a plan for us and we needed to have our security stripped away from us. We needed to have a heart to move. And so that's what he did. He unpicked it bit by bit. We needed to stop 
relying on us. I think there were specific needs probably we were brought here for. And I don't understand all the things that we went through to get here. Some of the health difficulties, particularly some health ones, I still don't understand why. I may never understand why until eternity. But I know somehow they fit into a plan that got us where God wanted us to be. And that experience taught me something. Oh, there we go. Jump on. Jeremiah 29. The first bit, kind of, I knew off by heart, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It was the second bit, really, that actually made me think. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You see, what that experience taught me was actually to pray more, to seek God's will more, to trust in him more, that actually he's in control, not me. The difficulties we taught, the difficulties we had, taught me to rely on God a whole heap more. It taught me that actually his goodness overwhelms the problems, that there's comfort in pain, that chance isn't chance, that God's involved in the minutiae, the daily problems that I have, as well as these massive global problems that the world has. Because nothing and no one can thwart God's sovereign purpose for us. Most of us see God's, you know, God's blessings in God's goodness in the blessings of life, but perhaps we're not quite as quick to see his goodness in the trials of life. So in times of trial, it's important that we know we must know that God is suffering, even over the evil things that people do to us, and that God is good and he works everything together for good. It may be years, it might be eternity, before we figure out specifically how God is using our trials. Esther and Mordecai had about 12 to 18 months under the threat of Haman's plot. Poor Joseph had to keep trusting for nearly a decade in an Egyptian jail. And trusting God, you see, it's a mindset, the physical outworkings, but it's a mindset, it's in our head and in our hearts. Because if we're focused on our happiness as our center, we can't trust or glorify God because we've put him outside. We're no longer revolving around him, we're revolving around our happiness. When we move God back into the center, rightfully where he should be, then we can trust him and glorify him through our troubles. Because scripture makes it quite clear that God's glory is the supreme thing, the supreme thing in our lives. And if we can daily, moment by moment, thought in our thoughts, glorify God, showing a trusting attitude that he's, he is sovereign, he is good, then he's going to bless us more than we can imagine, even in the midst of our trials. But if we're focused on our own happiness, then we're going to be left a miserable and despondent people. So it all ended well for Esther, didn't it? The last chapter of the book, chapter 10, is a tribute to King Xerxes, but actually it's mostly a tribute to Mordecai for saving the Jews and what a cracking job he did. Because what man intended for ill, God intended for good. I'm just going to finish off with another quick story that Phil Burns reminded me of. It's from the good old Do You Know Him archive. And... 
And this very much shows the principle of this, because as part of the Do You Know Him plan, there was a brilliant schools outreach. We'd invited all these schools in to do stuff, a really big event, and we had lots of schools sign up. It was all going really well. And then parents from one school complained. They didn't like what we were doing. They weren't very keen on what we were teaching, what we were saying. They complained, but they complained to the education department at the council. We have a problem. We've got schools booked in, all this is organized, and now we've got somebody from the local authority coming out to see what we're doing, to determine a course of action. Man had intended ill against us. So out comes the inspector, spends some time watching, listening, seeing, having a look at what we're doing, and then finally came to deliver her judgment. And she asked, could she write this up as an example of good practice for others to follow? Because she thought it was absolutely brilliant. What man had intended for ill, God had intended for good.